Chapter Twenty Seven of The Empty Sack by Basil King. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Twenty Seven. Teddy was not called on to face a bunch of men till going to the courtroom for his trial. Dressed long before the hour in a new dark blue suit, fresh linen, and a dark blue tie, his prison pallor, a little like that of death, put him out of the list of the active and free. As he sat on the edge of his bunk, sombre with dread, he was nevertheless obliged to find suitable jocosities with which to answer the good-luck wishes that came slithering along the walls from the neighbouring cells. It was half-past nine before two guards, whom he had never seen before, stalwart fellows, well over six feet, came to the door and unlocked it. "'Ready, Folly. Time's come.' Springing to his feet, he found handcuffs slipped round his wrists, before he was aware of what was being done. It was an unexpected indignity. He had never been handcuffed before. "'Say, fellows,' he protested, "'I'll go all right. I don't want these on me.' "'Come along with ye.' The words were friendly rather than rough, as was also the hand of a guard on each shoulder as they steered him along the corridor. The brig is a rambling building, or succession of buildings, with courthouse and house of detention under the same series of roofs. The pilgrimage was long, upstairs, downstairs, through passages, past offices, past courtrooms, with guards, police, clerks, lawyers, litigants, loungers, standing about everywhere. The sight of a man in handcuffs arrested all eyes for the moment, and stilled all tongues. With his glances flying from right to left and from left to right, Teddy again began to feel the sense of separation from the human race which had struck to his soul that day on the marshes. Of his other impressions, the chief was that of squalor. It seemed as if all the elements had been brought together that would make poor justice vulgar and unimpressive. Out of a squalid cell he had been pushed along squalid hallways, through groups of squalid faces into a squalid courtroom, where he was ushered into a squalid cave, long and narrow, with a seat hardly wider than a knife-blade. Once within the cage the handcuffs were taken off, the door was locked, and each of the stalwart guards took his stand at one end. The cage being raised some six or eight inches above the level of the floor, the boy was well in sight of everyone. It was like being on a throne, or a calvary. On taking his seat he was vaguely conscious of a bank of faces, tier above tier, at the back of the courtroom. Before him some fifteen or twenty officials, reporters and lawyers lolled at their tables, walked about, yawned, picked their teeth, or told anecdotes that raised a smothered laugh. Most of them struck him as untidily dressed. Few looked intelligent. Among them a portly man, whom he afterwards saw as the district attorney, in a cutaway coat with a line of piquet at the opening of his waistcoat, seemed like a person in fancy costume. Everyone paused as he entered the cage, but, at last having satisfied their curiosity, they paid him no further attention. The trial lasted three days, passing before his eyes like a motion-picture film of which he was only a spectator. Try as he would, he found it hard to believe that the proceedings had anything to do with him. All this fuss, he would comment to himself grimly, to get the right to kill a man. The strain of being under so many cruel or indifferent eyes sent him back with relief to his cell, where during the nights he slept soundly. His one bit of surprise came from Stenhouse's final argument in his defence. Up to that point 
both defence and prosecution had struck him as more or less silly. The State had tried to prove him a desperado whom it was dangerous to let live. The defence had done its best to show him a youth of arrested intelligence, not responsible for his acts. He grinned inwardly when Jenny, Gussie, and half a dozen of his old chums testified to foolish pranks, forgotten or half-forgotten by himself, in the hope of convincing the court that he had never had the normal sense. But Stenhouse, in his concluding speech, transcended all that, taking Teddy's own stand as the only one which offered the ghost of a chance of acquittal. He began his final appeal quietly, in a tone little more than colloquial. "'There's an old saying, a variant on something said by Benjamin Franklin, which we might remember oftener than we do. It's terse, pithy, humorous, wise. Someone has called it the finest bit of free verse composed in the eighteenth century. Listen to it. It is hard to make an empty sack stand upright. So it is. The empty sack collapses of its own accord. It can't do anything but collapse. It was not meant to stand upright. To demand that it shall stand upright is to insist on the impossible. A full sack will stand as solid as a tree. A group of full sacks will support one another. Put the empty sack among them, and from the very law of gravitation it will go down helplessly. Now, gentlemen of the jury, you are being asked to bring in a verdict against the empty sack, the sack that has been carefully kept empty, because it hasn't the strength and stability of that which all the coffers of the country have combined to fill. With this as a text, Stenhouse draw a picture of the industrious man who is limited by the very nature of his industry. He is not limited by his own desire, but by the use society wishes to make of him. Serving a turn, he is schooled to serve that turn, and to serve no other turn. This schooling takes him unawares. He doesn't know it has begun, before waking to find himself drilled to a system from which only a giant can escape. Few men being giants, the average man plods on, because he doesn't know what else to do. There is really anything else for him to do. Having taken the first ill-paid job that comes his way, he hasn't meant to give himself to it all his life. He dreams of something bigger, more brilliant, more productive. The boy who runs errands sees himself a merchant. The lad who becomes a clerk looks forward to being a partner. The young man who enters a bank is sure that some day he will be bank president. Sometimes, gentlemen, these early visions work out to a reality. But in the vast majority of cases, the youth, before he ceases to be a youth, finds himself where the horse is when he has once submitted to the bridle. He can go only as he is driven. Life is organised not to let him go in any other way. Needing him for a certain purpose, it keeps him to that purpose. Work, taken as a great corporate thing, is made up of hundreds of millions of tiny tasks, each of which calls for a man. The man being found, he must be trimmed to the size of his task. Stenhouse had no quarrel with methods universally followed by civilised man. To criticise them was not his intention, as it was not his intention to complain, because man had not yet brought in the golden age. But I do claim that the smaller the task to which a man is nailed down, and the smaller the pay he is able to earn, the greater the responsibility of collective society toward that individual. There was a time, he declared, when much has been said to the discredit of slavery, but one thing could be urged in its favour. The man who had been kept throughout his life to one small job 
was not thrown out in his old age to provide for himself as he could. Having worked for society, as society was constituted then, society recognised at least the duty of taking care of him. Stenhouse disclaimed any comparison between free American labour and a servile condition. He was striving only for a principle. Men couldn't be screwed down during all their working lives to the lowest wage on which body and soul could be kept together, and then be judged by the same standards as those who had had opportunity to make provision for themselves and their families. The same interpretation of the law couldn't be made to cover the cases of the full sack and the empty one. And yet, he went on, changing his tone with his theme, the empty sack is of value because it can be filled. Coarse, cheap, negligible as it seems, it is much too good to throw away. It is an asset to production, to the country's trade, to the whole world's wealth. And, gentlemen, what shall we say when we call that empty sack a man? The value of the human asset was the next point to which he led his listeners. It is only a truism to say that among all the precious things with which the Almighty has blessed his creation, the most precious is a human life. And yet we lived in a world which seems to believe this so little that we must sometimes remind ourselves that it is so. Within a few years we have seen millions of men reckoned merely as stuff. As productive assets to the race they haven't counted. We could read of a day's loss at the battlefield running up into the thousands, and never turn a hair. We came to regard a young man's life as primarily a thing to throw away. It is for this reason, gentlemen of the jury, that I venture to remind you that a young man's life is primarily a thing to save. It may be a truism to say that a human life is the most precious of all created things, but it is a truism of which we are only now, to our bitter and incalculable cost, beginning to realise the truth. He went on to draw a picture of the contributions to the general good made by the Follets, father and son. Their work had been humble, but it had been essential. Essential work, faithfully performed, should guarantee an old age protected against penury. He reminded his hearers that he was not opposed to the law of supply and demand, which was the only known method by which the business of the world could be carried on. He only pleaded for the same humanity to a man as was shown to a broken-down old horse. From his one interview with Lizzie, Stenhouse had got what he called the good line. Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out of the corn. Of this he now made use, following it up with St. Paul's explanation. Doth God take care for oxen, or saith he it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, no doubt, this is written, that he that ploweth may plough in hope, and that he that thresheth in hope should be partaker of his hope. Gentlemen, so long as we live in a society in which the vast majority of us can never be partakers of the hope with which we started out, so long must justice take account of the suffering of the poor muzzled brute that treadeth out the corn. If he go frenzied and runs amuck, he cannot be judged by the standards which apply to him who has been left unmuzzled and free to satisfy his wants. It is not fair, it is not human. It is true that to protect your own interests you have the power to shoot him down. But when he lies dead at your feet, no more muzzled in death than he was in life, there is surely somewhere in the universe an avenging force that is on his side, and which will make you, 
you, as representatives of the society which has placed its action in your hands, and you, as twelve private individuals with duties and consciences, there is somewhere in the universe this avenging force which will require his blood at your hands and make you pay the penalty. Surely you can find a better use for that valuable asset, a young man's life, than just to take it away. For the sake of the public whose honour is in your keeping, you must play the game squarely. For the sake of your own future peace of mind, you must not add your own crime to this poor boy's misfortune. Your duty at this minute is not merely to interpret the dead letter of a law. It is to be the voice of the people whom you represent. Remember that by the verdict you bring in, that people will be committed to the most destructive of all destructive acts, or it will get expression for that deep human common sense which transcends written phrases to act in the spirit of the greatest of us all, judging not according to the appearance, not according to the appearance, gentlemen, and you remember who counselled that, but judging righteous judgment. He fell back into his seat, exhausted. He was so impressive and impassioned as to convince many of his hearers that he believed his own plea, which to some who had considered the verdict a certainty, it was now in doubt. Among Teddy's friends a hope arose, that in spite of all expectation to the contrary, he might be saved. Bob looked over and smiled. Teddy smiled back, but mainly because he rejoiced in what he felt to be his justification. He couldn't see how they could convict him after such a setting forth as that, though for the consequences of acquittal he had so little heart. In the excitement of the courtroom, the judge's voice, when he began to give the jury their instructions, fell like cool, quiet rain on thunderous sultriness. He was a small man, with a leathery, unemotional face, framed by an iron-grey wig of faultless side-parting, and long, straight, unnaturally smooth hair. He had the faculty of seeming attentive without being influenced. Listening, reasoning, asking a question, or settling a disputed point, he gave the impression of having reduced intelligence to the soulless accuracy of a cash register. He reminded the jury that the law was not on trial, society was not on trial. The industrial experience of one Josiah Follett was not a feature in the case. They must not allow the issue to be confused by the social arguments which befogged so many of the questions of the day. It was quite possible that the world was not as perfect as it might be. It was even possible that the law was not the most perfect law that could be passed. But those were considerations into which they could not enter. In merely approaching them, they would lose their way. The law, as it stands, is the voice of the people as it is. And the only questions before them were, first, whether or not the accused had broken that law, and, second, if he had broken it, to what degree. In answering these questions, they must limit themselves to the bare facts of the charge. With the prisoner's temptations, they had nothing to do, except in so far as they tended to create intent. The consequences to his person, whether in the way of liberty or of the last penalty, were no concern of others. Justice in itself, viewed as justice in the abstract, was no concern of theirs. They were not, however, to burden their consciences with the fear that the accused was thus deprived of protection. The duty of a jury was not protection, but discernment. The administration of the law was far too big and complex a thing for any one body of men to deal with, 
justice, having many aspects, the law had as many departments. Protection was in other hands than theirs. The application of justice, pure and simple, involving punishment for guilt without excluding pity for the provocation, was duly guaranteed by the methods of the State. They would find their task simplified by dismissing all such hesitations from their minds and confining themselves to the definite question which he repeated. Had the prisoner at the bar broken the existing law, and if he had so broken it, to what degree? Having explained the difference between manslaughter and murder, as well as between first-degree murder and second, he admitted that, in case the accused was found guilty, there was much to indicate the second degree rather than the first. There was, however, one damning fact. The hand that had shot Peter Flynn went on at once to shoot William Jackman. The killing of one man might have been an accident. If not an accident, it might still have mitigating features. But for the murderer of a first man to proceed at once to become the murderer of a second indicated a planned and deliberate intent. When the court had adjourned and the jury had retired to consider their verdict, one of the guards unlocked the cage, and Teddy was taken down by a corkscrew staircase to a room immediately below. It was a small room, lighted by one feeble bulb, and aired from an air-shaft. A table and two chairs stood in the middle of the room. A shiny, well-worn bench was fixed to one of the walls. The guards took the chairs. Teddy sat down on the bench. One of the guards cut off a piece of tobacco and put it in his mouth. The other lighted a cheap cigar. Taking another from an upper waistcoat pocket, he held it out toward Teddy. "'Have a smoke, young fella." Teddy shook his head. He was hardly aware of being addressed. Nothing else was said to him, and the guards, almost silently, began a game of cards. This waiting with prisoners for verdicts was always a tedious affair, and one to be got through patiently. To Teddy it was not so much tedious as it was unreal. He sat with arms folded, his head sunk, and the foot of the leg which was thrown across the other leg kicking outward mechanically. Except for a rare grunted remark between the players, there was no sound but the slap of the cards on the table and the scooping in of the tricks. After nearly half an hour the door opened, and Bob Collingham came in with a basket containing sandwiches and a thermos bottle of hot coffee. With a word of explanation to the guards, he was allowed to take his seat beside the prisoner. "'Hello, old sport. Must be relieved that it's soon going to be over. Brought you something to eat.' With this introduction, they took up commonplace ground, as if it was a commonplace occasion. Teddy asked after his mother and sisters. Bob gave him the family news. Of the trial, they said nothing. Of what they were waiting for, no more was said than that Bob had persuaded Jenny and Gussie to go home, promising to come and tell them the decision. Lizzie and Gladys had not appeared in the courtroom at all. Of all this, Teddy approved, as he munched his sandwiches stolidly. The supply of food and coffee being large, they invited the guards to share with them. The invitation was accepted, the officers suspending their game. The talk became friendly, commenting on the judge's wig and the glass eye of the foreman of the jury, but not touching directly on the trial. 
These subjects, as well as the supply of sandwiches, exhausted, the guards returned to their game, the two young men being left to themselves. For the most part they sat in silence, a silence as nearly cheerful as the circumstances permitted. "'Don't worry about me, Bob,' Teddy murmured once. "'I'm not going to care much, whichever way it is. "'Honest to God, I don't say I wouldn't like it if they sent me back home, but if they don't—' Allowing his companion to finish the sentence for himself, he lapsed into silence again. Another time, speaking as if subterranean thought came for a moment to the surface, he said, "'I like what you said about hardness and pluck. I've been practising away on them both, making myself tough inside. Funny how you can, isn't it? You think at first that because you're soft you've got to be soft, but you find out that you're just what you'd like to make yourself. It's a great line, Bob.' Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You watch, he added with a tremulous smile, and you'll see me doing it. All right, old boy, I'll watch, but we'll all be doing it with you. We're practising too. Jenny and the girls are regular bricks, and of course your mother. He smiled again. Good old Ma, she sure is the best ever. I'd be sorry for her that I am if I didn't feel certain that if, that if I go, she won't wait long after me. He swung away from this aspect of his thought to a new one. "'Say, Bob, do you suppose it's a sign that God really is with me, gump as I am, that he sent you to take Ma and the girls off my hands, you know, and make my mind easy?' They discussed those happenings which might reasonably be held to be signs of divine good intention, after which silence fell again. The guards grunted or yawned, the cards were slapped on the table, the tricks were pulled in with a scratching of paper against wood. An hour went by, another hour, and then another. In spite of his efforts to make himself hard, Teddy felt the tension. Having accidentally touched Bob's hand, he grasped it with a clutch like a vice. He was still clutching it when a messenger came to the door to say that the jury was about to render their verdict and the prisoner must come back into court. Bob climbed the corkscrew first. A guard followed him, then Teddy, then the other guard. It was after seven in the evening. The courtroom, relatively empty, had a sickly look under crude electric lighting. But half of the spectators had come back, and only those officials and lawyers who were obliged to be in their places. All the reporters were there, watching for every shade in Teddy's face, and seeing more than he expressed. Bob managed to pass in front of the cage. "'Remember, Teddy, hardness is the big word.' "'Sure thing,' Teddy whispered back. The jury filed in. The judge took his place. Teddy was ordered to stand up. He stood very straight, his hands in the pockets of his jacket. In all that met the eye, he was a sturdy, stocky young man, pleasing to look at, and with no suggestion of the criminal.' His face was grave, with a gravity beyond that of death, but he showed no sign of nervousness. If anyone showed nervousness, it was the foreman of the jury, a good-natured fish-dealer with a drooping reddish moustache, who had never expected to be in this situation. When asked if the jury had arrived at a verdict, his voice trembled as he answered, "'We have.' 
What is your verdict? We find the accused guilty of murder. Of murder in the first or the second degree? In the first. That was all. Bob wheeled round toward Teddy, who smiled courageously. It's all right, Bob, he whispered, as their hands met over the rail of the cage. I've got the right line on it. It's my medicine, and I know how to take it. Keep Ma and the girls from worrying, and I can go straight through with it. It was all there was time for. They had not noticed that Stenhouse had said something about appeal, and the judge something about sentence. Everyone was leaving. Stenhouse came to shake hands with his client and tell him that the game wasn't up yet. The boy thanked him. The cage was unlocked, and once more Teddy, with a guard in front and a guard following after him, went down the corkscrew stair. End of chapter 27